Welcome to the New York Mandate podcast, where we take a look at the costs and consequences of New York's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. I'm Amy, and in this series, I'll be talking with people who have been directly affected by mandates about their perspectives and experiences. I'm here today with Sujata Gibson, who is an attorney based in Ithaca, New York, uh, also an adjunct professor at um, Cornell Law School. and. We're here to talk about the um, the cases that she's involved in, um, the lawsuits uh, in New York City against the vaccine mandates that are in place. But let me ask you before we begin um, a little bit about your background. Anything you'd like to say about yourself? Well, I uh, I practice uh, primarily in the area of civil rights. I have a civil rights firm, the Gibson Law Firm in Ithaca. And my area of uh, expertise at Cornell is, uh, is also in civil rights and constitutional law, primarily around movement law and representing protesters um, and the role of dissent in society. I think before we jump into talking about the cases that you're working on, I'd like to lay out for people a little bit um, what mandates really are. in in legal terms, how they fit into the landscape of uh, law. Um, when we say mandate, we're talking about um, an order that has come from the executive branch of government, you know, local, state, or federal, um, that makes something mandatory, right? What is the legal basis for those kinds of executive orders and um, and how do they compare to laws? So the, our, um, I mean, mandates really could come from anywhere. They could come through a law, they could come through an executive order, or they could come from an employer's personal decision. Um, and that is kind of the confusing landscape we're in right now. But in the United States, both federally and in, the, in New York State, we have very strong protections, um, constitutional protections uh, for separation of powers so that the legislative branch is supposed to make the laws, the executive branch is supposed to enforce them, and the judicial branch is supposed to interpret them. And um, what we've really seen uh, explode during, uh, during COVID is extreme overreach by the executive branch. They've used these so-called emergency powers as an excuse to completely trample our basic separation of powers uh, constitutional protections, uh, which is very important to balance out uh, how our system works. And we have a fundamental right to vote for the people that are making these decisions, not to just have them <laughs> appointed or to, uh, you know, and, and, to, and to have a different function. So anyway, um, the, a lot of these mandates are being issued by executive order. And the short answer is, I think a lot of them are way outside of the power of the executive branch and are unlawful. And that's what a lot of our lawsuits um, touch on and increasingly we're bringing more. Um, in New York State, Governor Cuomo uh, was able to get these enhanced emergency powers where he was able to make new regulations as well as pause regulations under the emergency powers, but that ended a long time ago and the legislature you know, very clearly spoke. And so with all of these mandates that Governor Hochul is putting into place um, I believe are completely unconstitutional and completely unlawful. Mm -hmm. And how do how do mandates compare when it comes to enforcement? 
we understand how laws are enforced. Um, but people often talk about how well, these mandates, they're, they're not really laws, you can't really enforce them. You know, people who are opposing them will often say this. Is that true? Is that is there not the same um, power of, of enforcement when it comes to mandates compared to laws? Well, are you asking me, are they enforced with the force of law or should they be able to be enforced with the force of law? In reality, uh, they are being enforced with the force of law. People, um, uh, you know, in, in kind of a, it is possible to pass regulations through the executive branch. I mean, we give power to administrative bodies like the Department of Health to make their own sets of regulations, but what they're really only supposed to be doing is working within the, the grant from the legislature saying, okay, you have this area of expertise, this is what you can do. Um, but with the vaccine issue, for example, they've far exceeded that. In fact, the public health law specifically says, you know, the New York State Department of Health is not allowed to make any new vaccine mandates, and, and yet they have. Uh, and now they've gone a step further and they're asking for police enforcement uh, of these laws. So. Um, there is there is enforcement. Uh, they they do carry the force of law, even though they're called regulations or mandates. Um, you can also uh, there's a variety of ways to enforce them otherwise too. But there there is some debate about whether that's appropriate that they can ask the police to enforce them. But it is happening and it does happen. So for the for the New York City mandates, um, which is what your cases are involved with. Um, I want to explain to people who don't know the full extent of what the vaccine mandates are in New York City. Um, the first uh, mandates um, making the COVID-19 vaccine mandatory for workers uh, went into effect in the fall of um, 2021, and they were for municipal workers. Uh, there were teachers, um, Department of Health workers and then they rolled them out for other municipal workers um, that fall. In December, they also added a worker mandate, which uh, covers everyone who is employed in New York City, um, including by private employers, everyone who works in a workplace um, or who comes in contact with the public in the course of their work. So unless you are working at home, um, and you don't come in contact with anyone else, coworkers or the public, you fall under the mandate and your employer is required by the city to affirm that you have been vaccinated. Um, we have seen the, the enforcement really be um, for the municipal workers who are employed by the government that, is, um, that has issued the mandate right? Um, th there's some language about fines uh, for the for the private employer mandate on the city website. It sort of says, well, it starts at $1,000 um, and then goes up from there. But it doesn't, as far as I've seen, and I, I do always put notes, um, links in the um, podcast notes so that people can see the city's language. Um, they, they're kind of vague on what the penalties are um, for private employers is that if it were a law, the penalty would need to be codified and specified, right? There are laws where there's flexible penalties. Um, so I don't really think that that's 
the issues so much as that they're essentially deputizing private employers to uh, enforce these mandates and become kind of the enforcement mechanism and with a with a real threat of fines and it's um, a lot of a lot of business owners have pushed back saying that they don't want to be in that position they don't they don't feel that this is necessary for their employees in their workplace and they think it's a private health choice that they shouldn't have to be policing uh, and the government shouldn't be deputizing them to do this especially on penalty of fine i think where it gets really uh, really dicey is that the city's gone a step further there is a religious exemption available but the city has kind of narrowly defined what's an acceptable religious exemption and held out this sort of threatening requirement that employers have to keep all of their paperwork and reasons for their determination if they allow someone to have a religious exemption uh, that the city at any time could swoop in and look at to see if they've violated or you know allowed too many people to have a religious exemption which really is the opposite of how it should be under the EEOC guidance and Title VII and you know, basic religious accommodation, the default is you're supposed to trust people and take them at face value when they say that their you know, sincere religious beliefs prevent them from doing something. And the question is really about how to accommodate them and what, what the safe way of doing that is. Uh, unless you have some real objective reason to doubt them, for example, if you heard them bragging to their co-workers oh I just made this up or you know if somebody says I've never been to the doctor in my life I don't believe in it but you know that they go every week so you know something like that where you really have objective evidence to doubt their sincerity that's the only time you're supposed to sort of second guess their religious beliefs and the city has turned that on its head and threatened employers essentially you know, suggesting they could be fined if they accept people inappropriately or beyond these very narrow unconstitutional criteria. So it's put employers in a terrible position because on, on the one hand, you have these robust federal protections against discrimination and failure to accommodate religious beliefs, which employees can sue over. On the other hand, you have New York City suggesting they may fine you if you allow religious exemptions they don't agree with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when people so there uh, for all of the mandates in New York City, private and um, public worker, there are religious and medical exemptions permitted, right? Yes, that came through lawsuits. <laughs> At first, when they uh, they issued their first, uh, you know, mandate uh, that didn't allow for a testing instead of uh, getting vaccinated option in August, the day after the Pfizer vaccine was approved. And that was for the DOE employees and Department of Education. And they had no religious exemption and no medical exemption. And there was a flurry of lawsuits. I mean, pretty much every union in the city was suing. People were up in arms. Um, they really got a lot more pushback than I think they thought they were going to. And a judge, a state court judge even, um, issued an injunction against the mandate entirely because it didn't have a religious exemption or a medical exemption. And so then immediately uh, the city and the DOE negotiated with these arbitrators and with the unions in this sort of slapdash uh, decision that, okay, we are going to offer these religious and medical exemptions, but they narrowed them so uh, unconstitutionally that basically no one was given it one. They denied everybody that applied. They had a criteria that said, you know, we're going to preference Jehovah's Witnesses and we are going to discriminate against minority religions that don't, you know, that have 
and against people who have religious beliefs that conflict with or certain orthodoxies, like the Pope's orthodoxy. Um, it was really unconstitutional what happened. And so then they allowed people, they denied everyone, and then they allowed people to appeal to these arbitrators, and the arbitrators' meetings were like, I went to several of them, they were like, um, you know, watching a religious interrogation from, from the Spanish Inquisition. It was crazy. I mean, they were really literally saying to people, the DOE attorneys were, were telling people, well, or telling the arbitrator, well, they should be denied because the Pope doesn't agree with them. And this would be Buddhists, you know, people that have, and they'd say, what does the Pope have to do with my religious beliefs? Why is that even relevant? How is that constitutional? It clearly wasn't. So, um, I got a little bit off topic, but so they do have religious exemptions. They've granted very few. Um, and in the DOE context, even if you get a religious exemption, you still can't enter into any school building, despite the fact that we now know that vaccination can't stop transmission. So in terms of danger to others, there's no difference. I, I believe that's the case with uh, medical exemptions as well. The medical exemptions are also shockingly and unconstitutionally narrow. Um, I've had people, I've, I've spoken to, to, uh, to people who have admitted that they, they basically are enforcing it uh, almost as if you have to have had an anaphylactic shock reaction that made you get intubated within 15 minutes of getting the shot and almost everything else is being denied. I mean, people are getting denied after having myocarditis, they're being denied, uh, you know, when they have like three or four physicians and specialists saying they really need an exemption, they're getting denied. So the process for medical exemptions is that you get some kind of letter uh, from a medical professional, right? And you submit that to either the city, that's your employer, if you're employed by the city, or your private employer, is that right? You, you submit your paperwork to your employer. Um, yes. And, and the same is the case for the religious exemptions. So people who are submitting religious exem exemptions to private employers are submitting those to their employers and then their employers are being asked to determine whether they should have an exemption. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then of course there's, is there, is there? Right. So then you have private employers who are not medical professionals looking yeah. at a doctor's letter mm -hmm. and saying, this doesn't seem like a good reason. I don't really understand it. I'm going to overrule their treating physician, you know, or you have somebody, an administrator at a school district who doesn't have a medical background, who doesn't, you know, has never treated the person, obviously, they're not qualified to do so, who's able to then override the medical advice of a licensed New York State physician who is the treating physician. Are you saying that it's the administration of each individual school that reviews um, applications for exemptions? Well, I actually am not uh, currently working on a medical exemption case for the New York City vaccine mandate. I have, I do have a medical exemption case for the children. Uh, so there's also a medical exemption for children's vaccination uh, in all of New York State schools. And yes, in those situations, uh, every school district does it slightly differently, but often you'll have school prints. The, the law actually says the school principal gets to decide uh, ultimately uh, what to do. And, and they're making these arbitrary and really frightening decisions um, to overrule physicians and specialists. 
And is that what's happening with the religious exemptions? Who's making the determinations for municipal employees, including teachers, um, who, who is processing the um, applications for, for religious exemptions? For teachers and municipal employees, so for the DOE, um, I think it's the same for all, everyone. Uh, it goes first to the agency, so the Department of Education, Department of Sanitation, whatever agency you work for. And then um, I'm not sure who in the agency is making the determination. I have heard that they've deputized all kinds of uh, employees that really don't have experience in this to kind of help review and they're not really giving training. But then after they make their initial denial, uh, a huge percentage are denied, if not all. Like at the DOE, it was all, uh, we believe. Uh, and at some of these agencies, maybe they'll grant a few, but mostly they deny. And then you're able to go to what they've called a citywide panel um, or to arbitration. So originally it was, you could only go to arbitration and you had to be governed by these totally discriminatory standards that said minority religions, you know, can't be accepted and only Jehovah's Witnesses and you know Christian scientists essentially will be um, and, and even you know more than that but uh, so anyway so that we sued and uh, the Second Circuit agreed with us that that's totally unconstitutional but rather than get rid of that they just added a second option so they basically have this uh, separate but so-called equal option if you're a Jehovah's Witness or a Christian scientist look you can take this arbitration option, presumably get preferential treatment. If you're not, you have to go to the citywide panel, uh, which is, you know, yet again, very unconstitutional. Um, but in the citywide panel process, it's kind of a black box. Uh, and that's something that our lawsuits have been exploring a lot lately. We finally got to depose uh, the person that helped create this system. Um, and what we found was, was really surprising. They have no training. They have three... Uh, people, one from the law department that's defending them in these lawsuits and has a vested interest in, uh, in maintaining the denials so that we, you know, because otherwise uh, they could say, well, yeah, we did, you know, unlawfully deny a lot of people, but if they maintain the denials, uh, then, then they may have a stronger suit. So that's one problem is that it's led by the law department that is also their defense attorneys. Um, and then there are two other employees and they don't give any reason for their decision. They just review the paperwork um, and they make a checkbox and they write like a sentence, a very cryptic sentence. Uh, often they say something like, employees' religious beliefs while sincere do not prohibit vaccination. So basically what they're saying is, okay, you have sincere religious beliefs, I'm not questioning that, but I don't view your religion as prohibiting you from doing this, which is also, again, unconstitutional. It's not whether they think the religion prevents somebody. It's whether the person who practices the religion believes that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think this is probably a good um, place to jump into the cases that you're working on in more detail. So um, why don't you tell us about those cases? Well, I'm actually working on state cases and city cases, um, but I'll, I'll focus on the city cases. <laughs> um, so uh, the two big uh, New York City cases that I'm working on are uh, Kane v. de Blasio, which is the New York City Department of Education case on behalf of teachers and uh, principals and other educators. And then the other one 
is the New Yorkers for Religious Liberties versus City of New York, um, which is for all uh, all municipal employees uh, and, and also actually covers the private vaccine mandates as well. They're very similar suits, but they work kind of in tandem. Essentially what happened is the DOE web, uh, you know, the DOE mandate came into effect and they used it as a model citywide to then extend it to everybody else. So what, what are the arguments that you're making in, in these lawsuits? What are the, what's the basis for these, your- These lawsuits are focused on religious liberty. Um, we believe that the city has grossly violated religious rights in these mandates. There, it, it is true that the First Amendment um, under, under modern constitutional analysis can permit the government to infringe on um, religious freedom in certain circumstances, in narrow cases where there's kind of a law of general applicability. So you asked, why is it so significant, a law versus a regulation? Well, this is one of the reasons, because these executive orders are not that kind of general tax law or general criminal law that was encompassed to kind of allow the government to, to function without a lot of scrutiny. These are these are very individualized. I mean, Mayor Adams has, uh, between Mayor Adams and Mayor de Blasio, they've issued now, I think, 108 executive orders requiring vaccination of their employees, various employees in New York City. They're replete with carve outs and discretion. And, you know, as you may or may not know, for example, after being heavily lobbied uh, by big donors and actual lobbyists, uh, Mayor Adams made this carve out for athletes and entertainers and even strippers and their entourages. And yet, uh, you know, hardworking firefighters and police officers and sanitation workers uh, and private employees are not being given, who have sincere religious beliefs are not being given an exemption. And there's sort of no rhyme or reason. So this is exactly the kind of case that the Supreme Court said has to be strictly scrutinized and the mandates fall apart. They haven't even been able to offer any evidence for why they need to do this to people. They admit uh, essentially at this point that the, the vaccines can't stop transmission. Um, it's, it's really shocking that they're keeping this up. So they, when they made these carve outs that you're talking about for entertainers and um, professional sports players, um, that was something that made the chances for your <laughs> cases to win better, right? That that was something that improved your odds. Yes. <laughs> I mean, at that point, they basically signed uh, <laughs> signed their own, uh, I don't know how to put it exactly, that, but yes, I, I mean, it, it's uh, a slam dunk then. You can't, you cannot, the Supreme Court has been very clear in case after case after case, you cannot have these secular carve-outs, carve-outs for economic reasons or you know, because you like, uh, you've gotten money from the big donor who runs the sports teams or whoever it is, you can't do that and then not accommodate religious beliefs. And that's essentially what the city has done. Um, so yes, it, 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 it strengthened what we'd already been arguing, which is, look, these are, this is not one monolithic general law that sort of should get this deference. This is a very individualized, highly specific discretionary process. Not to mention, you know, the individual religious exemption determinations also are discretionary and also need to be strictly scrutinized. These, I mean, we have people with sincere religious beliefs. We have you know, ordained ministers, people who have uh, 
you know, have to go through great lengths. Some people who have had to move to other states when the religious exemption for children was repealed because their beliefs, their, their sincere religious beliefs against vaccination are so strong. They're commuting from New Jersey. You know, I mean, there's, there's all there. Our clients are um, hardworking New Yorkers who have sincere religious beliefs and they deserve to be accommodated unless there's some reason why the city just cannot work with them. But, but right now, instead, they're just firing thousands of teachers, thousands of firefighters, thousands of police officers, and it's hurting everybody in the city. So are you optimistic at this point? You sound very optimistic that, that you'll succeed in these cases. Well, you're never supposed to say as a lawyer that you know what the outcome is. And I think that that's right. These are very political um, cases. Uh, the vaccine issue is a very political issue at this point, which is a real shame. Um, but yes, I don't see how, on the law, I don't see how they could succeed. There's, uh, it's just so clearly a violation what they're doing. Yeah, I believe that we will win. So recently, you've had a series of judges uh, recuse themselves Yes. What was happening with that? So this is an exciting week. <laughs> We've <laughs> gone through uh, three judges in 24 hours on the Kane v. de Blasio case in New York City. Um, so essentially last week, uh, I, uh, my colleague and I from Nelson Madden Black, who's working on the case with me, they represent the other set of DOE plaintiffs, uh, Kyle v. City of New York. Um, but we put together a motion to disqualify the judge that has been presiding over this case for eight months, Judge Caproni, because we discovered that she owns, uh, as of her most recent financial disclosure statement, which just came out, she owned uh, up to $100,000 in Pfizer stock in 2020, which by 2021, when the case was brought, would be about $150,000 worth of Pfizer stock because the price really shot up in large part because of the mandates. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we moved to disqualify her, pointing out that there's it's pretty well documented that when courts have enjoined, uh, which means, you know, paused or, you know, overturned mandates, uh, vaccine mandates, the Pfizer stocks have gone down. For example, when the Supreme Court um, enjoined the federal OSHA mandate, there was a big dip, a noticeable dip in Pfizer stock. And they've, they're, able to increase in relation to uh, the mandates because it helps, they have a captive audience essentially and it, it helps them sell more product to the government. So um, we filed that Thursday, Monday, uh, Judge Caproni agreed to step down. Um, it, was, uh, it was very fast we appreciated that. Uh, she doesn't believe that Pfizer stock ownership is an issue, but out of an abundance of caution for the appearance of impropriety, she uh, she did it. And so then we were immediately assigned another judge, Judge Ramos. And I at first didn't even think to check. I assumed, well, of course, they're going to assign a non-conflicted judge. But I thought, well, let me just check. He also had Pfizer stock, but also he had Johnson & Johnson and other vaccine manufacturer stocks for the COVID vaccine. So. We immediately filed another motion to disqualify Judge Ramos, and he stepped down within hours of getting that motion. And we were assigned a third judge. And I checked, of course, and she actually owned 
and her most recent financial disclosures show more Pfizer stock than any other judge in the Southern District, um, 250000 up to $250,000 of Pfizer stock in 2020, uh, and $100,000 in Johnson & Johnson. So we immediately moved to recuse uh, Judge Buchwald. Um, she did respond to the next day that she's denied our application um, because our information is outdated. I hope that that means she sold the stock um, and that there is no current conflict of interest, um, but it is a little bit cryptic. So we're, we're, we're gonna be asking for you know, further information about that just so that we can really be certain because we have had now four judges on this case that own substantial Pfizer stock, um, or actually the first one owned Johnson & Johnson. I'm not sure if she owned Pfizer, but that's four judges uh, on one case that are all financially conflicted. And shockingly, when we looked at the list of um, judges in the Southern District, at least 13 of them own um, COVID vaccine stocks, substantial amounts of COVID vaccine stocks, um, which really, I think, highlights uh, this kind of national conversation that we're having right now, there's even legislation about it right now, about judges owning individual stocks. I mean, most, you know, in the Second Circuit, you see most of the judges just have these mutual funds. They don't mm -hmm. have this ownership in individual stocks, but you're not seeing that in the Southern District of New York. And it just leads to so many questions about conflicts and so much of an appearance of impropriety. I mean, you've had Judge Ramos, for example, presided over an Exxon case and owned Exxon stock recently, and it was a big scandal. Um, so, so this is a, an issue that is hopefully uh, it's good that we're talking about it and I hope it can get resolved. So you're talking about um, not just um, they, they are invested in a fund that has a variety of investments in you know the medical industry and it includes Pfizer stock you're talking about they or their financial advisors or whoever you know um, makes their stock purchases specifically purchased Pfizer stock yes, just direct stock it's not part of a fund I mean I'm sure that the, there could be conflicts even if your fund is heavily invested but but we are just talking about direct Pfizer Inc ownership mm-hmm mm-hmm Okay. So the cases that you're working on, they're all on a religious basis. You're making First Amendment arguments, right? Yes. Where does that leave people who are opposed to the vaccine mandates and don't want to don't want the mandates applied to them but are not religious? <laughs> it's a very important next uh, it's a very important part of this conversation as well. I mean, I think that there's a very good argument that the mandates are unlawful as to everyone. The courts aren't ready to start there, unfortunately. So we're starting with, you know, where we can kind of help help the most people. And right now the, the religious question is so clear. What they're doing is so clearly unlawful um, under current precedent. And in terms of bodily autonomy in general, um, I think that there's very good, a very good argument constitutionally that you can't mandate these vaccines for anyone. Um, 
what the really the most fundamental right we have is over our own bodies. And there's a lot of case law that talks about that. Unfortunately, there's a 1905 case um, that decided it, uh, the issue a, a different way and said, well, you know, it is true that uh, autonomy over the body is, is one of the most fundamental, you know, rights we have, but at the same time, we uh, force people to go to war and potentially die. And um, I think that was their main example. We put people in prison and so the right isn't unlimited. And so in certain emergency situations, the government may be able to force you to get vaccinated for the good of everyone else under their police powers. Now, I, I mean, I don't wanna get into a heady long discussion, but I, I think that there is a lot of case law that has happened since then. This was a case in 1905 before we even had international human rights law before we had our modern jurisprudence identifying fundamental rights versus non-fundamental rights. And since then we have identified um, bodily autonomy as a fundamental right, specifically the right to refuse medicine. Um, we have kind of, uh, our laws have changed a lot. And so I think there's a very good argument at this point that uh, to the extent that that 1905 case is good law at all, it doesn't apply in most cases of vaccine mandates. Um, is this, I'll say one other uh, thing. That case in 1905 was then used to justify Buck v. v. Bell, uh, which was a case <laughs> that they said, well, if we can force vaccinate people, we can also force sterilize women if we think that their more, you know, their morals are bad and we don't want the, them to pass their morals or their physical infirmities or their uh, mental deficiencies onto their offspring. So as part of this police power, we basically can practice eugenics. And that, that's what you get when you uphold Jacobson. That's the kind of precedential effect that a case like Jacobson has. And I think we have to think very carefully as a society um, because they're right. If you can do that to people, why not be able to do this to people? I mean, it's a, a very slippery slope when you start telling people what they have to do to their own bodies. Um, what period was uh, Buck B.B. Bell? I think that Buck v. Bell was in the 40s, but uh, don't quote me on that. I mean, I guess I'm that, that was a, <laughs> was a period of time. So the first case that you're talking about in 1905, that was um, that would have been concerning smallpox, a smallpox right. vaccine. I believe that was the only vaccine that existed then in 1905. I'm not sure, but I do know that uh, even in that case, they really did limit it. They said this only this decision is only supposed to apply to this case. In this particular case, we find it's okay because number one, the penalty is five dollars, which is I don't know forty dollars today. They say although it might be much more because in the last year we've had so much inflation. Um, but, um, you know, and it was uh, an emergency at the time and it was for a limited period of time that they mandated it and you could opt out with this $5 fine. And, you know, there were a variety of reasons why it was okay, but, but courts now today are just saying, well, that means any vaccine mandate ever, even if it's in perpetuity, even if the vaccine doesn't actually work to stop transmission, even if, um, you know, there's no other option is fine because of that 1905 case. And they're just wrong. And that was, um, 
that was a vaccine mandate in 1905 that was tied to residency, not employment. Is that what it was? Yes, it was for it was a general law. So it, all residents of um, I'm not certain, but I think it was Cambridge. But it was a it was one uh, municipality. All residents had to get a smallpox vaccine during a very intense outbreak. But you could opt out. You just had to be you had to pay a five dollar fine. Right. And then the other case that you're talking about was in the 1940s around there. And that's, of course, when there was um, a very strong eugenics movement in the United States and Europe, which is one of the things that led to the Holocaust. (laughs) Eugenics ideas, um, you know, that it's a good idea to control the quote unquote quality of your population by... Right. preventing some people from having children and you know <laughs> yeah. and i mean the nazis also conscripted departments of health uh, to talk about how jews are dirty and a danger to others from a public health perspective i mean there's right i don't i'm not drawing a parallel between these two or trying to diminish the the horrors of the holocaust but i think we do need to learn from history that when we start allowing uh, the erosion of these really fundamental things like our choices over our own bodies, what we do medically to ourselves, the changes we make. Um, we are, we have seen in history that that can lead to extremely tyrannical and horrific human rights abuses. Mm-hmm. So the, when to go back to the, um, the idea of bodily autonomy that you were talking about emerging kind of an international law and emerging as a legal, as a stronger legal concept over the 20th century. That's something that kind of came out of um, the end of World War II with the Nuremberg um, laws and international law. Is it, um, is it something though that is in the constitution, which predates that whole movement to limit the control that governments have over over the individual body? Very little of what we say our constitutional rights are written out specifically in the constitution. The way that the, I mean, basically the provision that we're looking at when we're talking about these constitutional rights is that we're entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so, you know, within life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, the liberty right is usually what the court has focused on to figure out what are the fundamental kind of rights that encompass liberty uh, that the Constitution then would protect. And, And there are very few that have been enumerated, although more could be added, the courts, um, particularly now, are hesitant to expand it too far, but bodily autonomy is one of them. The right to informed consent, the right to refuse medicine, uh, those are are enumerated as fundamental rights now by by the Supreme Court for for decades, really. So um, that's where you get it from the Constitution, but from uh, it's also codified in statute. It's in international law. It's in the right to informed consent is um, is very much enmeshed in in the state law, in the federal law. Um, so it is a right. It, but it, the problem is whether the courts are willing to enforce it. And 
um, it's an incremental process to get there. I think one of the things you hear a lot when the courts, because I, I have brought this argument in federal court and we do have uh, we do have this issue on appeal. And one of the things that the courts will try to do is say, well, mandating the vaccine is not forcing the vaccine on people. And so we are not actually um, violating your right to bodily autonomy because you can still opt out. You just won't have a job or you won't be able to go to school or, you know. And, and that again is an unconstitutional argument. We have a whole doctrine called the unconstitutional conditions doctrine, uh, which says that you can, if a government isn't allowed to do something, they can't attach a benefit, you know, to a benefit, a condition that is unconstitutional. So even if you're not necessarily entitled to have a job or entitled to go to school, um, you can't say, I'll let you have a job or go to school as long as you violate this uh, constitutional right. Right. I know that a lot of the um, protesters, um, the people who are protesting vaccine mandates, are very concerned with the encroachment of international law on U.S. law. At the same time, they appeal to um, Nuremberg and some international um, law like that. But they're very concerned about, um, you know, like the WHO imposing um, its rules on you know, the United States in engaging in uh, treaty international treaties that will give the WHO authority over our legal system. So is there, is, is this a, like a tricky, is this kind of a minefield relying on, to some extent, on international law principles in international law? Because then you are also, uh, you know, engaging or, or um, sort of opening yourself up to being governed by international law more than U.S. law? Well, that's a fascinating question. Uh, it's one that I haven't actually uh, delved into that much. Most of my cases are constitutional law, and so that's what I'm focusing on. And when it comes to informed consent, there's statutory law that's already here in the United States. So I'm not as much trying to enforce Nuremberg other than to say, look, every country in the world now adopted this as a fundamental human right, that means it is a fundamental constitutional right. And that's one of the factors that you use when you say, is this a fundamental kind of right or is it just sort of a right, you know, to go to Disneyland or whatever? You know, like, a, it's, you know, well, what kind of liberty are we talking about here? Is this one of the fundamental characteristics of being human? I get to decide what happens to my body. I get to decide whether to have children um, uh, and what, how to bring them up. And, you know, various fundamental rights are, um, are different. So that's what, that's where I focus my efforts. But I think it is a good question uh, when we start to say that there's this international body that gets to decide for every country what uh, the right, the right uh, laws are, uh, that can, that can get very sticky as well. And I do think that there are some pitfalls there. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about um, emergency powers, <laughs> because what I wonder is, um, is the real way of uh, for, for people to address um, vaccine mandates through electoral politics? 
because is a leg is it always a legislative body that's elected um, that is granting power to the executive that the executive is then using to issue mandates? Um, is that ultimate? Is this ultimately a question that can be answered by voters? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> in, in some part, yes. I, I mean, I think that uh, it can be as long as the lines between the executive and legislative branches are very clearly enforced. And so that is why the court cases and the court's uh, role is vital to ensure that when people say, look, the executive branch is taking power that they're not supposed to have. We can't have these unelected administrators in administrative agencies making these decisions. They're not accountable to voters. And so if voters are upset that there's a vaccine mandate for healthcare workers and everybody's, you know, hospitals are closing down and they're not, you know, and doctors are fleeing the state, then they have no recourse because the New York State Department of Health is not elected by them uh, and is very indirect. Well, it's true that the executive can appoint the commissioner and, you know, this. But anyway, so yes, I think, um, but ultimately, I think you need both. I think we need to be vigilant in the courts about these blurring of the lines between executive versus legislative function, but we also need to vote uh, very consciously for people who are going to stand up for us. And it, that's not an easy thing to find because pharmaceutical money is the biggest lobby in Congress. And it's a huge lobby in the States. And it's even funding, you know, a lot of the media, 70% of the mainstream media budget in a non-election year is from pharmaceutical companies. It may be more now, that was a few years ago. So. Um, it's very hard to find politicians who are willing to stand up to pharmaceutical companies. They have a huge amount of power. Mm -hmm. Are there though, I don't know, just in, I'm, I'm sure this varies from city to city and state to state, um, but are there executive powers here um, in New York that are always, that don't have to be granted? That, you know, does the, does the mayor or the you know governor, the health commissioner, do they have some inherent some some powers that are inherent in their position that they don't have to be granted by the legislature or by the city council? Yes, uh, and actually, the if you bring up the city, that it's a little bit different in local governments than state. So the state executive may have less uh, power in some ways to kind of blur the lines than the uh, local governments, which when we're talking about vaccine mandates, local governments historically have had a little bit more of their own autonomy to decide. So it, it is possible under current uh, law and precedent for a local mayor to make a vaccine mandate, but then it has to be subjected to constitutional scrutiny to ensure it's not violating any other constitutional right. But yes, under the kind of state separation of powers executives, uh, if it's an emergency and under their, what's called their police powers to kind of protect everybody, they can issue regulations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and executive orders. I, I also want to ask you a little bit about, um, about the anti-mandate movement, because I know that you know a lot about um, movement politics as well um, <clears throat> and the history of that in general. Uh, but first I have a uh, a tricky question about uh, the mandates that has come up um, about the New York City worker mandate, which is, 
can self-employed people give themselves exemptions? This came up in, in, a, in a discussion with, with other um, people I've been interviewing um, when we realized that the New York City um, mandates do in fact apply to independent contractors, self-employed people. If they work with anyone else or interface with the public, um, they fall under the mandate. But can they give themselves religious exemptions? Can they accept medical documentation for themselves? <laughs> So, so there are at least 108 executive orders now governing uh, these issues, and I'm afraid I'm not. I haven't drilled down far enough into that question to know whether in one of the 108 executive orders uh, it's, it, it does anything to prohibit self-employed people to give themselves a religious exemption. It's a very good question. I'd love, I mean, I'd be interested to look at that. <laughs> Do you know if those um, 108 orders or thereabouts um, are publicly available? Yes. The mayor's, I believe they're, um, you just Google like executive order, Mayor Adams and or Mayor de Blasio, you know, you can, you can get them all uh, on, okay. the, on the city's website. I'm, I'm going to try to link to those uh, for people because I've, I've always linked to some so that people can see the mandates for themselves. Um, but I didn't realize that there were quite that many. <laughs> I think we filed 96 of them along with our preliminary injunction motion in Cain v. de Blasio and also the New Yorkers for Religious Freedom case. So I could forward you those, but there's more issued constantly. I mean, it's ridiculous. This is the opposite of a general law. It's just so arbitrary, you know, one day, now the clowns shall be vaccinated, you know? Now the strippers shall not have to. Now that, you know, I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's actually, at this point, it's absurd and offensive because you're talking about people's lives and it's just random. What do, what do you make? I don't know if there, I don't know if this is really a question about law. I don't know if you can answer it in, the, in a, that sense. Um, but what do you make of the public health arguments that the city is making? Um, you know, they're saying- they, they aren't making them. I mean, they, that's what's really shocking to me is that they aren't engaging in the science. You see Mayor Adams going on TV and saying, this is all about the science. Well, even when he made his carve out for athletes, then why doesn't that apply to everyone? I mean, you know, why is a stripper or an, a basketball player um, somehow less of a danger to everyone else than a sanitation worker? If you really think, and, and he hasn't, I mean, they haven't really addressed the issue um, of our emerging, you know, clear understanding that these vaccines can't stop transmission. They just can't. And, and there's really no valid uh, evidence to support an argument the other way at this point. You know, there may have been questions or hopes in the beginning. We did know they were non-sterilizing. So we've never, uh, you know, there's two categories of vaccines. There's those that are so-called sterilizing vaccines and so-called unsterilizing vaccines or non-sterilizing. And so the non-sterilizing ones are never even really designed to stop infection. They're designed to stop symptoms. They're a treatment essentially. And this was always in that category, mRNA technology, they're not even using the whole, the whole virus. So your body 
gets infected and then it fights a part of the virus once you're infected. So in any event, um, it, you know, so it's a very different question when you have a non-sterilizing vaccine when it's just really largely uh, supposed to be for personal protection, uh, whether that gives any justification under public health to mandate that for people. So what if they came out with a new and improved <laughs> vaccine that was absolutely bulletproof in terms of transmission and preve uh, prevented transmission, um, but people still had misgivings about its safety and a, a significant number of people did not want to take it? Would the government, would the city have a stronger argument? I think so. I, I mean, I, I still believe that um, basic bodily autonomy and constitutional, you know, religious rights and medical rights would require that there be some exemptions available or accommodation attempt to accommodate people who can't participate, um, like there is for really any uh, law or, <laughs> or public health uh, initiative. But um, I think it would certainly be a stronger case. But the, the thing that is so frustrating with how we've kind of decided to deal with these public health cases is there's been a real move, which luckily the Supreme Court is pushing back on now um, pretty heavily, but there, there's been this sort of trend for too long to say our normal, um, you know, process of like having people have to prove in court that they really need to do this to people to trample their rights uh, for, because of their because of public health and public safety, that's not going to apply. They can just get total deference. They don't have to give us a single study that says that they're you know what they're doing is supported. They don't have to um, you know answer any questions. They don't even have to say that they think it really does. As long as they just say uh, there may be some reason, you know, don't worry about it. That's pretty much been enough for the courts and uh, what the Supreme Court has been doing in recent years is pushing back on that and saying, no, you know, the government is always going to be saying that they have to do something and that they have the particular expertise, but the job of the courts is to look at that. And courts look at evidence all the time. That's what we do as lawyers. We're very good at, you know, courts have a whole system for evaluating expert testimony and for evaluating the strength of evidence presented and for um, kind of weighing different claims. We do that in medical malpractice cases, for example. We do that, um, uh, you know, in a variety of contexts. And so it's not like the courts aren't capable of having the city just actually justify these mandates. I think should be done. I think for all of our sakes, it should be done. If, if it was shifted to a question of informed consent um, and so you took transmission off the table. People weren't concerned about that anymore. We had a really great vaccine that prevented uh, transmission. Um, but some people were concerned about the um, safety of the vaccine. The argument for informed consent would rely on the existence of data indicating a risk, right? Well... Uh, it depends. Uh, Jacobson itself carved out a category for that. So even before we had the right to informed consent, uh, Jacobson recognized that people have a right to refuse medical products that could harm them. Um, so if there was, and that would require 
you know, some showing, whether it's from a doctor's note, for example, or something that, you know, the person is personally at substantial risk from the product. Generally, it wouldn't be enough to say the product itself carries risks. Um, I believe it should be, but, um, but under current law, you would have to show that the, the individual is at risk. And we do have a process for that that comes from um, the abortion context, but has been extended by the courts into other medical decision making, um, which is that with medical exemptions, for example, to the uh, second trimester rule in abortion cases, at the same time Roe v. Wade was decided, a companion case called Doe v. Bolton was decided. And that case said, you know, the, the state wants to second guess doctors' opinions about when someone needs a medical exemption from this, um, you know, trimester, you know, pre-viability versus post-viability um, abortion restriction. And they want to be able to have a whole hospital panel review the doctor's decision that the, the woman is at risk when they want, you know, corroborating opinions and the court, the Supreme Court said, none of that is okay. You know, the woman's right to make medical decisions with her doctor absent state interference uh, is superior to all of that. And so as long as the doctor is licensed by the state, that should be enough for the state and no further kind of interference or corroboration requirements or second guessing by third parties is allowed. Um, and then they, they, the court, Supreme Court extended that to medical decision-making um, in every other kind of medical exemption case. And so uh, that is one of the arguments that we have currently in the Court of Appeals for the medical exemption issue is that that is not what New York State has been doing. They have been second-guessing. They have been allowing even school principals to overrule medical doctors. Um, and so what we're saying is that if, you know, it should really just be as long as a doctor agrees that you have risk, that should be enough. So one of the concerns that I hear from, that I've heard from some people who um, are opposed to the mandates and work in medical fields um, is that doctors have been threatened um, for not, um, you know, if they, if they don't conform with the guidance from public health authorities, if they um, give medical exemptions that the their their administration feels are not appropriate, then they'll be penalized, maybe they'll lose their licenses. So there's a concern that um, physicians could be, this pressure could be put on physicians um, and medical institutions um, to not uh, grant, uh, you know, supporting, give supporting documentation for medical exemptions. Um, and if you're saying there's no sort of um, general principle for people to um, to uh, to object um, on the basis of the uh, their perception of the of the medical product being dangerous, then d doesn't that kind of wouldn't that kind of leave people um, with no re no legal argument to make no recourse? Yes. Uh, I mean, if you're asking me what my part, you know, if I were to be able to write the law, <laughs> I would say people get to decide I mean, that that is why medical decision making is such a personal choice. And we don't, you know, people have a variety of ways that they make medical decisions. And when you're talking about your own body and what's right for you, 
uh, it really should be your own choice, um, particularly given the pressures that physicians face, because it's true, people are losing their medical licenses for writing valid medical exemptions. Uh, people are being losing their medical licenses for expressing concerns that have turned out to be true about the vaccine, either the origins of the vaccine, which, you know, nothing that we know where it came from, but it used to be you could lose your medical license for suggesting we should look into the whether it originated in the lab uh, or the, the, the coronavirus um, itself. And then similarly, you know, for treatments or for for alternative uh, viewpoints than the mainstream kind of dogma, yeah, it's a very dangerous time um, for all of us. I think no matter what you think about any particular question, whether you take the vaccine, you don't take the vaccine, um, doesn't really matter. We should all want accountability and a variety of uh, opinions to be heard, medical opinions. And I think when we start to see people silenced, it's very dangerous. But back to your original question, yes, if I could write the law, I would say everybody decides. And I think the constitution supports that argument and that that is what we should be working towards. I think the interim step though, is to say at the very least, don't second guess people's doctors. <laughs> at the very least, if somebody's treating physician says it, that's, that's gotta be enough for you, you know, as a state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you're but you're also kind of saying that there isn't really a strong legal basis for people objecting to a, per, a product, a medical product, because of just a perceived risk without the support of the, some medical authority. Well, that's where we need say, the laws. Yeah. You know, that, and that it's not it's not that I don't think there's a basis or that there's a legal argument. I do. I do think that there's a lot of constitutional law. In fact, the right to refuse medicine cases. Um, are against medical advice. You know, it's saying that even if the doctor says I need to do this and there's no risk or, or it's gonna save my life, I can still opt out and that should be applied here. But uh, what I, realistically, what I'm think, you know, when if, if people are asking me what I think would win in court, <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's the floor we need to secure. And then we can start talking about how we also need to be making decisions on our own about medicine. But I think at the very least, we need to get the courts to step in and stop the government from trampling even the limits that we've already made on medical decision making. Do Is there a case that the opposing side is, is making about protecting, about the, the right for people to protect themselves from harm? Is there a legal case? Uh, I mean, this I think this is the common case that's made, right? Your rights end where my rights begin. Um, you, can, you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't cause harm to me. The argument that they're making is that there's a reduction in harm, um, <clears throat> that, that the vaccine um, is, is creating. Um, so is there a legal argument on that side that, that people have a right to protection? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's the police power. That's what that's the whole, their whole argument is based on that, the, the right of the government to try to protect the community from the spread of disease. And, and that is a right of government to try to figure out how to do that. Uh, but the question really, so these aren't easy issues. I mean, and what I point out in court is, look, this law was made in the abortion context, where 
the government already has proven uh, in the court that they have a compelling interest in saving the life of that child after viability, uh, they have that right. And this case was about whether, nonetheless, the woman's right to protect herself uh, and to work with her own doctor on determining where that line is in terms of her own health risk uh, supersedes that. And so the, it was a very difficult case. It's, it's not an easy thing. So, and that, that would definitely result in the death of somebody else. Whereas in a vaccine situation, the government is a lot more hard pressed to show that anybody is actually going to be harmed or die as a result of a person's decision to protect themselves from something that their doctor uh, supports them and saying is definitely going to, or very likely going to harm them significantly. Um, and so I think that's where it's very frustrating that far too many courts just wanna have this hands off. I don't wanna think about it. I just, you know, I don't wanna weigh the evidence or look at where we are with that. Um, and, and I don't think that that's safe or appropriate for anyone because these are very important interests on both sides. We, you know, we do have to, we do as a society wanna see how we can protect each other. We might have different opinions about that. And ultimately it might be the government's right to say, well, we get to decide whether we're right or wrong. We get to decide how to try to protect everybody. Um, but, but our individual rights are just as vital and, and often superseding. I think our right to protect ourselves from physical harm when there's a credible reason to believe we are at risk of harm does supersede that. The, the government doesn't get to ask that we sacrifice ourselves in the name of public health. Before we wrap up, I do want to ask you about, about just the anti-mandate movement. I know that you know a lot about um, you know, movement history, uh, movement politics. Um, what's, your, what's your thought about what's happening now with the anti-mandate movement? Well, um, I kind of have my head down and I'm working hard on the, the legal side, but I do think it's a really exciting time in this movement. I believe, uh, my understanding is that this is the biggest, internationally, this is the biggest movement we've ever had uh, in terms of the raw numbers of people that are kind of joining this movement of medical freedom. And um you have these, you don't see it on the news, but you're seeing there's, you know, people, millions of people are coming out into the streets all over Europe. You know, you saw what was happening in Canada and I don't know how much coverage there was for everybody, but just so many people. And a lot of these people uh, are vaccinated people and people who are taking the vaccine and sometimes even people who are taking the booster um, and standing up and, say, and and realizing this affects everybody. First of all, just from a basic accountability standard, if you want to have a safe vaccine, you need these companies to be accountable. And if you're going to just mandate everything, put it into a black box, censor all dissent, you know, all of that, then you can pretty much be guaranteed that you're going to have a dangerous product. So if you do want the vaccine, I think that that is uh, especially uh, a time to stand up with the with this movement and support this movement. Um, and for those who don't want to take it, I think that this is, I think this is the kind of the last, um, it's sort of the, the last sacred thing is our own bodies. And I, and I don't see, 
And that's why I really feel confident that this movement will win, because what I see with movements is when people feel it on such a deep kind of personal and spiritual level, really, like, we're not just, we're talking about my body, my right to my body, and start standing up, I, I, uh, I think that there's a very good chance that the tide is going to turn. And we're, I think we're seeing that politically, which is very exciting. Um, but just to quickly say, you know, with movements in general, with peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience movements, there has been a lot of study about kind of what percentage of the population needs to resist um, in order to win. Um, and it's really actually pretty small. I think it's under 4%. And at this point, I think that there's more than that that, that really have um, gotten very energized and are, are standing very strong. This is, um, this is a make or break voting issue for a lot of voters. And I think if people can stick with that and, um, you know, especially stay, uh, stay true to their principles and try to express them with dignity and nonviolence and strength, I think that um, there's a very good chance that, that uh, we'll see the tide turn here. I know that they're investing a lot of hope in your efforts. <laughs> when I talk to people in the anti-mandate movement, um, they're placing a lot of their hopes in the legal cases that are being pursued right now. I think they worked, you know, arm in arm. And that's part of the reason I took the first DOE case in the first place is I really admired the work that the teachers and the principals and educators were doing. I think their movement, you know, I really respected kind of how they were going about organizing and, and standing so strong and they're so sincere in their beliefs. Um, and they were getting out in the streets, even despite all they were going through, all the chaos of losing their income, of trying to figure out their whole lives, you know, just devastating, devastating things. They were still making the time to get out in the streets, to show up at the courthouse, to show up at the protests. And um, these things don't work in a vacuum. You know, I mean, courts can't help but be moved uh, in, in some ways by the politics of the time. And you really need both. You need f the fight to be in the courts, but also out on the streets in a peaceful and nonviolent way. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you think is important to mention? Um, well, uh, I guess there's probably a lot to say. Um, I just want to thank you for, for having me on and for documenting the story of what's happening in New York City, um, because it really is heartbreaking. It, it really is. Um, I don't have to tell you, I'm sure if you've had guests on, I just have so much respect for all of the people that are being impacted in New York City, for how much they're going through, for how hard they're fighting. Um, and how you know true they are in their hearts and in their souls to trying to fight for justice not just for themselves but for everybody because what happens in new york city right now i really think um the whole world is watching and i think that uh especially the more sinister aspects of the world and i think that if we allow this to happen in new york city i think that we're really in danger everywhere so i really hope that people everywhere, even people who have had to flee the city and um, set up, you know, somewhere else that that we keep fighting here in New York and we don't let this happen. We don't let this uh, go unchallenged. 
Well, I want to really thank you for talking with me today. I know that this will be really an interesting conversation for people to listen to. And I, I, your time is valuable, and I really appreciate you making time for this. Um, I don't know if you, I, I, I know that it's difficult to predict sometimes what the timeline for cases is. I don't know if you uh, have an idea of when you'll, um, be moving to next steps or, or getting some resolution to the cases you're working on, but I hope that you will come back in the future and, and talk more about it um, whenever there are, you know, major developments. I'd be happy to. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.